0: The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributor, and it do not necessarily speak to the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Good morning, friends. <clears throat> I'm so grateful to be here with you all this morning, I'm grateful to Mike Huber for the invitation and connection. Um, Coming to you from the Detroit River watershed and arrived here by way of a quick five-hour flight, crossing over 2,000 miles of rivers, mountains, creatures, and homes. Detroit is the place that I'm currently putting down roots and I also want to name that it is the traditional land and home of many indigenous peoples, including the Anishinaabe, Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi. I'm still learning their stories. I first found my way to Detroit three years ago in the midst of my liberal arts education for a month-long project on urban agriculture in the city. I was fairly familiar with urban ag scenes in other cities, including here in Portland, but what I encountered in Detroit was different than any other place I'd been. When I asked folks there about their motivations to farm or garden, The most common response had more to do with survival than anything else, because there was such an extreme lack of grocery stores and public transportation in the city. Detroit was, and still is, devastated by decades of rampant racism, predatory capitalism, and governmental corruption. I knew theoretically that these systems we live in do not work for everyone. But I admit that Detroit was the first place I'd been in where it felt like the veil was lifted enough to truly see and experience it for myself. So after a couple years away from the city to finish school and serve an incredible year in Quaker Voluntary Service, I moved back to Detroit this past September. Without a job, but with a deep and urgent sense of spirit calling me back to that place and community. Living inside of what one friend calls the belly of the U.S. Empire Beast, has continued to both disturb and transform me. Perhaps most unexpectedly, at least to me, my time in Detroit has given me a context with which to understand the Christian tradition I was brought up in, which I felt so distant from for so long. This past fall, I audited a class at Detroit's Ecumenical Theological Seminary, taught by a prolific Detroit activist, poet, and theologian named Dr. Jim Perkinson. I'd heard great things about the professor, but I honestly wasn't quite sure what I was getting myself into. I remember arriving on the first day of class and Jim asking someone to pray us in and thinking to myself, oh gosh, I'm definitely not in public school anymore. (laughs) And I have to say that up until then, I'd never been a part of a class that even referenced the Bible in high school or in college. I hadn't owned one since probably my fourth grade First Communion. And I generally felt allergic to phrases like bible study or theology. But Jim's theology was more contextualized and politically relevant than any I'd encountered before. He named Roman Empire as both the context from which Jesus spoke and the context from which most of today's Christianity has grown. And he named the US as empire too. We didn't have to look too far for the comparisons to become quite obvious. The seminary building sits downtown in one of Detroit's most rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods, and the classroom windows look out over the neon lights of Little Caesars Arena, an entertainment venue that has received millions of dollars in tax breaks from the city government, even as thousands of Detroiters have had their water shut off for being just a few dollars behind on their water bills. It was from this context that we read stories like the widow's offering, the very end of Mark chapter 12. The story goes, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put and watched the crowd putting their money in the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. i had always heard this story interpreted as a parable, with the widow being painted as an example for all of us in her total humility and devotion to God and to the church. But under the neon lights of Little Caesars, pun not even intended, the story took on a new meaning. Perhaps Jesus was not only pointing out the widow's devotion, but also pointing towards the systemic wealth inequality that was encouraged and enforced by the powers that be. The rich can stay rich, but the poor get poorer. The wealthy businessmen get tax breaks, and the poor single moms are forced to give everything they have to live on. For me, it has been both comforting and deeply frightening to realize how relevant many of these stories still are. And each week as I drove home from class, often still reeling from that night's lessons, I couldn't help but reflect on my own place in each of these stories. Almost all of my life has looked significantly more like the lives of the rich than the life of the widow. My comfortable middle-class suburban upbringing was literally built on a series of tax breaks, figurative and literal. My grandpa, who has done extensive work on our family history often talks about the benefit our family received from the GI Bill after World War II, which allowed his parents to purchase a home, while only 2% of returning black veterans were able to do the same. This one example of one relatively small state benefit has only amplified through the generations and is certainly part of what allowed me to grow up the way I did and what allowed me to stand before you today. As grateful as I am for the way I grew up, It's become clear that my life's comfort and privilege came at the expense of others' basic needs. Just as the Little Caesar's tax breaks are not unrelated to the Detroiter water shutoffs, just as the widow's poverty was not unrelated to the temple's overflowing wealth. For any one person that benefits in these systems, many more are made to suffer. The story of the widow was made even more poignant for me when Jim suggested that we turn from the end of Mark 12. To the first couple lines of Mark 13, which are separated by chapter delineation, but are very likely meant to be read together. Mark 13 begins, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Jesus replied, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another everyone will be thrown down. Interpreting Mark 12 as I did before, how, much, how might the rich perceive this news? How might the poor? And here today, what are we to make of this? What am I to make of this as one who has benefited from these magnificent buildings, these massive societal institutions? Would I actually be prepared to celebrate their collapse? Or would I continue to hold on in fear of losing the privileges they have granted me? These are the questions that I'm sitting with in Detroit. And I think often of the words of another Detroit activist and writer, Tawana Petty. She said, no one deserves to live in this world we are living in now. No one. We all need to admit that we have been dehumanized. We all need to admit that we have not been functioning as full humans. Part of beginning to function as a full human for me has looked like learning these old, old stories and beginning to share more of my own. I've started working for a small print magazine called G's which shares stories and art on contemplative faith and cultural resistance. Across the street from our office, we regularly hear the sound of new construction where luxury apartments are rising up from the ground as if in fast forward motion. If there's a part of this story where these magnificent buildings will be torn down, it doesn't seem like that's happening quite yet. But in the meantime, we who sit across from them have choices to make every day. As a radical rabbi counseled us all those years ago, will we choose to be on guard? Will we choose to resist the gentrification and corruption in Detroit and around the country, even when this resistance comes at the cost of our own privileges and comfort? Will we choose to listen to and share stories from the margins, even when they feel full of anger or despair? Will we choose to name ourselves as the less desirable characters in these stories and be honest about our truths, even when they are not so pretty? We pray to let the Spirit guide our choosing. We pray to be held in the tension. I know that many of you hold these same tensions, and I invite us to spend some time now holding them together through these queries. What stories do you situate yourselves in and whose stories are they? What stories do you situate yourselves in and whose stories are they? What would you have to let go of to truly celebrate the dismantling of oppressive systems? What would you have to let go of to truly celebrate the dismantling of oppressive systems? And what would you have to gain? Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. We're really happy that so many of you are finding it to be helpful and as a way to stay connected with what's going on with us here at West Hills Friends. If you'd like to stay connected with us in other ways, we have a couple options for you. You can check out our website. It's westhillsfriends.org. There you'll find some more information about who we are as a community. You can also follow us on Facebook. We have a Facebook account by just searching for West Hills Friends. You can also follow us on Instagram. We have a Instagram account with the name West Hills Friends. So we hope that you'll get connected with us in other ways. And again, thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast.